A written transcript of this episode is provided by Starburst. For more information, you can see the show notes. Welcome to Data Mesh Radio with your host, Scott Hurlman, sponsored by Starburst. This is Adrian Estala, VP and Field CDO at Starburst and host of Data Mesh TV. Starburst is the leading contributor to Trino, the open source project, and the Data Mesh for Dummies book that I co-wrote with Colleen Tarto and Andy Mott. To claim your free book, head over to starburst.io. Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by my company, Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. This is going to be a panel because while I clearly am not shy about talking, I want to give others in the community a voice too. It definitely shouldn't only come from me. We should be hearing from many different people doing this. If you want to participate in a panel, please do get in touch. You can go to datameshunderstanding.com to see some of the other free community-friendly programs and the other learning resources we have. And you can check out our actually quite reasonably priced offerings. So let's hear some fun music and then jump into a quickish summary of what you'll hear about in this panel. Making Privacy Practical and Scalable in Data and Data Mesh, a panel led by Deborah Farber with Samia Rahman and Catherine Jarmel. So bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? Guest host Deborah Farber, who's a privacy expert and host of the Shifting Privacy Left podcast, facilitated a discussion with Catherine Jarmel, the author of the upcoming book, practical data privacy, and a principal data scientist at ThoughtWorks, also a guest of episode 157, and Samia Rahman, who's the director of data and AI strategy and architecture at the life sciences company CGen, and she was the guest of episode number 67. Personal warning here, there is some nerding out kind of at the end of the episode about how awesome it could be if some advanced privacy approaches and uh, PETs or privacy enhancing technologies were implemented at a broad scale across the industry to protect individuals' privacies. It's pretty early days, so kind of warning you about getting your hopes up, right? And then as well, this is a newer area for me. I I wanted to share my takeaways rather than trying to reflect the nuances of, of each of the panelists' views. This will kind of be the standard for panels going forward of just like, what are my takeaways rather than I'm going to go through, you know, every aspect of what people are thinking and saying. So my top takeaways, number one, privacy has been dominated by risk compliance historically, but it's starting to move past the defensive governance aspects. Privacy has mostly been at the tail end of the development cycle across systems and data, but it's starting to shift left across the board, much like aspects of kind of data and data mesh. Number two, regarding data mesh, given how many additional aspects of development we are asking domains to own, is it fair to ask them to own privacy as well? 
How can we train people to understand when to use privacy-enhancing technology and then make it easy to implement those decisions? Much like other aspects of the self-serve platform, right? Number three, privacy tech is emerging and maturing at a very significant rate. What was once a pipe dream or prohibitively expensive is much closer to being available to the masses. Much like data mesh in general couldn't really have been done before cloud-native tooling and technology started to mature, privacy is in a similar way forward. If you want to hear more about kind of more specific tech, there's some talk in this episode and then in Catherine's interview for episode 157. Number four, with the explosion in upcoming privacy-focused legislation across the world, much of which is at least slightly different from each other from country to country or state to state or any of that, we will see a large increase in the need for organizations to do privacy well and do privacy better. Shifting left is really the only way to do this scalably or we'll potentially see organizations stop doing a lot of currently valuable data work because the cost of privacy on that data work and that risk compliance becomes prohibitive. Upcoming legislation may be the thing pushing privacy forward more than anything else, and it may be the thing that's pushing privacy left as well. Number five, privacy is extra crucial when dealing with data leaving the organization, whether in a partnership or for those organizations that sell their data on a marketplace. Uh, Moshkan Tovakolifard from episode 154 talked about this where many companies are opting to merely package and sell insights because they can't track usage of the data deep into the partner data purchaser systems. It's a bit like what Jamak discussed, re-data going into the data science area of an organization right now and kind of how all governance and vis- visibility at best gets hazy. She talked about that in Jamak's corner number 18 or episode 195. Will cross-organization data mesh help address that? Probably, but it's five plus years away in my view. Number six, paraphrasing Deborah, at the end of the day, privacy is not about compliance. Privacy is about respecting the humans behind the data, not the data itself. So protecting the data is about risk to the organization. That's compliance. We need to encourage a mindset of how do I respect these humans' choices and their desires in the context of collecting the data. That's essential. So I think really thinking about privacy and compliance are not the same, and that privacy is about like, (laughs) what would this person want? What should we do? How do we do right by this person? And then how do we also make that not a big economic liability? And finally, number seven, if you don't do privacy well, there are risks to the company, of course. But a big one is that people will still look for and usually find ways to get access to sensitive data. People will seek out that value. If you make data easily accessible with the right privacy levels, you can unlock many high-value new use cases in compliant and low-risk ways. Organizations should start to look at the rewards of doing privacy well, not only the risks of doing it poorly, and start to ask when that actually overcomes the costs. If you want to see a a bunch of additional takeaways, uh, look in the show notes or listen to the weekly summaries episode from this week. 
Okay, with that summary of my top takeaways, and you can see the show notes for more takeaways if you'd like, but let's go ahead and actually hear from our awesome panelists themselves. This is Deborah J. Farber, the host of the Shifting Privacy Left podcast and the CEO of Principled LLC. Uh, Today, I'm your guest host on this Data Mesh podcast, uh, and I'm here with Samia and Catherine, who uh, we're collectively going to talk about privacy. Um, There's so much to cover, uh, and so I'm going to first let uh, Catherine introduce herself and then Samia. Thanks. Um, So my name is Catherine Jarmel. I'm a principal data scientist here at ThoughtWorks Germany. And um, I am the author of an upcoming book called Practical Data Privacy, which aims to teach privacy-enhancing technologies to data scientists. Very exciting and a very noble cause, in my opinion. (laughs) Okay. And Samia? Uh, hi, I'm Samia Rahman. So I worked with uh, Jamal Degani, the founder of Data Mesh, back in 2019 when it was originally published on Martin Fowler and an ex-thought worker. Uh, I was there for roughly four and a half or five years. I've lost count. And uh, uh, since my uh, Data Mesh implementation days with Jamal and ThoughtWorks, I shifted into a biotech company at CGen, uh, where we develop cancer drugs. Uh, for bettering the lives of patients. And with any life sciences space, uh, we are leveraging some of those data mesh principles. My role here is to lead our enterprise data strategy as well as governance so that we have a scalable future by which we can uh, develop those drugs with privacy, obviously, top of mind. And in biotech, there's the added complexity of uh, GXP practices, uh, the regulatory practices, the global transparency needs, etc. So it's very near and dear to me. And I'm eager to learn from this group today, and also share some of our uh, needs in the biotech space. Um, and I'll just pr- uh, preface with uh, today, all my opinions or my thoughts are explicitly mine, not that of uh, my companies. And I'm looking forward to what we discuss here. Awesome. Awesome. And then I guess I should also mention some, I'm looking a lot at the trends of moving uh, from a culture of privacy where we're really doing governance risk compliance work, where we're, you know, originally for the last I don't know, 20 years, we've been addressing privacy in organizations, mostly from, mostly with paper and policy, which doesn't actually protect data in and of itself. It, it might provide the rules around that, but there's been this, uh, you know, let's think of privacy, you know, at the end of the product development cycle and just add it on, which doesn't work. And so there, uh, I'm exploring the trends around shifting privacy left into the uh, system and de- system development life cycle, the data development life cycle, which is going to be a lot of what we're talking about today on the data side, 
and um, really looking at like privacy left trust. You know, it's kind of the opposite of zero trust, which is a great security uh, design approach, but uh, with privacy left trust, which is a new concept that we kind of I'm kind of made up with like another person on a recent podcast <laughs> is that you're you're it, you could actually prove privacy assurance if you're putting in place measurable quantifiable verifiable and auditable uh, tools and capabilities and what I'd love to talk about today in this context of privacy and data mesh is how you know, not only where are some of the risks for privacy and we can kind of do better or, or make sure it up, so to speak, um, but also how do we unlock the value of that data that we're trying to create as a data product uh, for in a data mesh design? So I guess to kick it off, uh, you know, I first want to ask, since privacy is not just about data, it's about like data flows and the context of those flows. You know, I don't know. I'm going to guess, uh, Catherine, what what does privacy fit? Like, where does privacy fit into a data mesh architectural approach from, you know, a, in a general way, like as you see it today? Yeah, well, um, data mesh uh, doesn't have a lot of hard, fast rules, uh, as as a lot of folks will will know who are longtime listeners. Um, so it'd be kind of difficult to say exactly where. Um, but the data mesh has a concept called um, the self serve architecture, and I've been a big proponent here at ThoughtWorks internally to start thinking about how do we leverage privacy technologies and the ability to rapidly build products that are based with privacy built in, or as you say, sh shift left privacy. Was that it? Yeah, privacy left trust is, is what I'm calling it now. Yeah. Privacy left trust architecture. Um, if we're going to do that, we have to have it in the platform because the idea of the platform essentially is how can we have a platform team or a series of platform teams build technologies that allow the data product teams or the different domains to quickly make data available. And therefore, the type of stuff that that we talk about when we talk about privacy enhancing technologies, it's fairly advanced technology, as you already know, Deborah. And so this means that there's no way that we should need to have a cryptographer on every team. There's no way that we need a differential privacy expert on every team. If we have those specialists, maybe they can go advise these data product teams, but really that stuff has to be built into the architecture itself so that you can quickly spin up new data products and you can just say, hey, we'd actually like to turn this downstream stream or, or this upstream source or this tagged source source into an uh, anonymized product where we have these differential privacy guarantees or something like this and do that instead of try to build it from scratch every time. <laughs> right, right. So, uh, you know, do you have thoughts on that, Samia? Yes, definitely. With, uh, plus one to what you said, Catherine. I think there's uh, some additional aspects that Data Mesh allows for privacy uh, by design, as well as compliance by design. So as you can imagine, in biotech, we have so many different layers of privacy and security needs uh, that we have to think about that unit of data product and the domain, the distributed domain owners who are the SMEs, that's the first principle of Data Mesh. It's really important that we 
at point of creation, have digestible policies and training so that people can actually use the platform to configure it appropriately. Oftentimes, we get lots of frequently asked questions in biotech space, for example, around how do I deal with pseudo-anonymized or even um, completely de-identified data? Is it, um, is it okay to capture that in uh, relationship to GDPR as well as clinical trial data? So the laws and the rules get very blurry. So the need for, uh, which is the federated uh, computational governance, the fourth principle is another one. It actually, uh, when I first started my journey with data mesh, that was the first thing. And I used the word shift left. So everything you're talking about, Deborah, resonates with me because even in the system development lifecycle, which a lot of biotech spaces have to, or everyone in biotech have to adhere to, Shift left is the guiding principle. At point of creation or at point of change, we want to review those policies quickly, use that platform to configure and then deploy those data products, but also track that data flow map. Um, So in biotech, again, I'll just share another nugget here. Uh, uh, The way data mesh helps empower some of those things is taking that framework Uh, the policies and the platform, taking all those components, it becomes important to also track how does data exit a company? So how are you doing uh, data exchange with, let's say, when it comes to uh, patient data or um, your your uh, healthcare provider data? How does what are the strand, standard contractual clauses you're putting in in the legal policy? So to me, the platform has an opportunity to also capture what are the usage rights of the data, along with who are those external vendors using the data, and are they adhering to the policies, that monitoring of adherence by other companies is also something I think is imminent in the industry because we can only ensure privacy in our internal space, but how do we ensure that despite the contractual clauses that they are truly protecting those entities' uh, privacy. So lots lots of uh, uh, tidbits for me because I've been thinking very deep about it, and I think Data Mesh really empowers and reinforces that shift left mindset, which is really leverage the true data owners and the data SMEs to drive that uh, uh, privacy or compliance needs that needs to be uh, maintained in an ecosystem. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, And I think there's uh, something, there are two things that come to mind for me that are really unique about data mesh, because I have to admit, data mesh is a new concept to me. Privacy, I've been in for 17 years, so I, I know the ins and outs of the of the entire, the different markets and how the laws have developed and, and, and you know, the, the pushing of technology. But for one, um, it's interesting to me that you're now taking, you know, privacy very often has been applied to, you know, your data lakes and the rules to one centralized place. Uh, and now we're federating that so that we're going to have, you know, the domain teams um, who are now being empowered, right, to kind of do that self-service. But at the same time, that means that it's each of these domain teams' jobs to make sure that whatever they're doing with the data, whether it's transforming it, uh, like you're not even allowed to aggregate uh, health data in the United States unless it says you're allowed to do so in your contracts, right? This is under HIPAA. Um, so like you, you need to really know the rules and the nuances um, and, but, you know, of course, maybe use tools that, uh, that can help enable to uh, 
automate so that you can scale this uh, safely and such. And, and there's there's ones coming to market, whether it's like personal data vaults or um, you know other platform controls. But you know, I just want to emphasize that if you're gonna if, if companies are going to use a, a data mesh uh, design, you know that that they really need to kind of upskill their employees on, uh, you know, educating them on what is allowed, what is not allowed. Like what are the different use cases for data sharing or transformation, uh, you know, or what's viable, you know, like, like we all know that it's really tough to anonymize because uh, re-identification usually is, is pretty easy if you just add additional data sets. So like understanding the risks to this data and also, sorry, uh, it also makes it more difficult to derive value out of an anonymized data set versus pseudonymized and and, and other types uh, of of data. And we'll get into privacy enhancing technologies more generally. But I, yeah, I just wanted to um, now I'll throw it back at you guys. What do you you know? What are your thoughts on that challenge? Do you you know, what do we need to do to be able to educate data scientists to be able to get them to understand? their obligations. Cause in the, sorry, at the end of the day, and I say, sorry, cause I'm asking a question and I'm going to go like say another statement, but um, at the end of the day, privacy is not about compliance. Privacy is about respecting the humans behind these, uh, the, the data, right? Not just the data itself. The protecting the data itself is about risk to the organization. Protecting um, the, having a mindset of how do I respect these humans' choices, you know, and their desires in this context of, of, of collecting the data um, is essential. So how do we get data scientists to kind of have this uh, mindful approach? I'll let either of you jump in and take that. I, I can jump in. Uh, so I have some thoughts. I've been playing around with the idea of digestible policies and training uh, with the ethical aspects of these things, right? To me, a good platform, the ideal world, my vision would be that at point of managing any kind of data or we're starting that next data science project, we have a brilliant idea, uh, or a new opportunity in the organization, it would be amazing to have this one-stop shop portal, which would give me just-in-time training and not 20 pages where it becomes very hard to understand. And then I have to talk to legal and you know talk to many experts to understand it, but with just enough education that simplifies the way I can get started with managing and realizing that value, right? Um, and to build that vision or that platform that offers that kind of training and the bootstrapping, let's say, via the self-serve platform, I think we need that appropriate governance council with the legal experts, with the ethical experts to kind of put together that training, uh, the global policies or the domain context policies, and really look at how, what does privacy mean in the context of HR? What does privacy mean in the context of patient? and that I think can really address that. And a lot of that thinking that I'm sharing emerges from the data mesh thinking because I have to think about data in domains. And then I have to very intentionally think about what kind of training is needed for those groups of people that deal with that data. And we minimize, so a, way, a great way to monitor that would be to is uh, how the time to comply or the time to do the right thing is 
what we would want can be measured because we're providing the appropriate trainings in the right uh, format that makes it easy for folks to adhere to those things. Uh, that's my two cents or my thought process. I'm cu- curious to hear, Catherine, uh, your thoughts there. Yeah, no, I think um, I think it almost also takes it back to what you were first uh, saying, which is also you have those like SME experts in those domains and um, when I first got introduced to Data Match, which was only when I joined ThoughtWorks that I first heard about it, um, the stuff, so I had worked in distributed and federated data analysis before that, where we're dealing only in data sharing situations, which of course, like high high risk, high privacy risk situations. Um, and I think one of the great things that you mentioned earlier is also just the knowledge that these SMEs have um, absolutely has to be combined with the privacy risk and also the privacy reward, perhaps, of using different technologies or of implementing data sharing or data ownership in different ways. I mean, one of the main problems that I've seen in my career, and I think that we all probably have seen, is... um, the lack of access to high quality data due to restrictions um, and and also therefore then the lack of adherence to the policies from the governance team, from the compliance team, from, from those teams. And so we see this when we see shadow IT operations. We see this when we see, you know, 2,000 people at a company have the most restricted role and nobody can tell anybody why they're using that role and what they're doing. There's a SharePoint with all the data here, whatever it is, right? Like uh, this happens. And I think one of the core principles of data mesh is really, or what I see, and maybe you can correct me because you were there as it was being developed, is like the democratization of data value and also, therefore, the democratization of privacy technologies and, and the way that we can build privacy directly into people's hands because the people that are using the data every day are the ones that are going to know. And you can be in an ivory governance tower, but you're going to not know that all this stuff is happening anyways, <laughs> regardless of the policies you make, which I'm not saying is the right way to do it. But if you build easier ways to get access and safer, more responsible, more ethical ways to get access, then you have a win-win situation and people are not going to find shortcuts. Is that what you saw too as Data Mesh was getting developed? Yeah. So I, I just wanted to share one of the one of the places I was at, uh, d- d- the Data Governance council or the group, they had lots of data stewards, everything was landlocked. So the developers found ways around, were frustrated with data quality to correct any data quality was a year long process. And as you can imagine, the markets are shifting people on board and deboard faster than ever. So the long-standing data governance structures in some old, or I wouldn't say older, bigger companies, they, they struggle to scale and it becomes imminent. How can we now shift left and make it easier and faster to maintain high quality data, which is usable, right? Fair principles in biotech. Uh, it's a subcomponent of data product uh, uh, attributes, uh, but 
data has to be findable. It has to be accessible, interoperable, and usable. And then if there's opportunity, reusable. So that's super near and dear and well acknowledged in the life sciences space, which I think Health, healthcare is finally catching up too, but I see a strong desire to enable innovation. Data governance is no longer about let's hold the shackles down or et cetera, or like guard the data and protect it to ensure privacy. It's more, yes, let's ensure privacy, let's be ethical, but also enable innovation. So that mindset, I think, is five years or 10 years old, it no longer sustains in 2023. So hopefully if any companies out there and they're still trying to do centralized governance for matrixed organizations, I would really strongly recommend rethinking. Obviously you can tell I have strong opinions here, <laughs> but yeah, Catherine, I've seen that and it's imminent that we, we leverage some of the data mesh principles to, to encourage good behavior, right? That's what we want to do while enabling innovation and incentivizing our stakeholders, our C-suite to do that. And I, sorry, I'm, I'm on a, uh, there are four new policies coming in, um, in, in this year, if I'm not mistaken, for similar to CCPA and GDPR in the US. And it's just scaling across the world. So in this decade, if we don't get strong about privacy and be prepared for privacy, we're going to start seeing some hard things happening from the government, government, right? So shift left will happen from the government, government <laughs> itself. Um, but I would yeah. be curious to hear your thoughts, Deborah, on how you're seeing the laws and regulations. Yeah, well, actually, first, I'm going to tell you about because you both inspired me to tell you about like kind of the trends I've seen over time, uh, where, you know, originally when it was like, oh, no, this is sensitive data, or this is sensitive personal data, right? Uh, or just personal data generally. A company's like, oh, we need to protect it. What are we going to do? Let's encrypt it, <laughs> right? So, and or or what I also see, and you see this a lot, oh my God, so much in the blockchain space where they conflate, uh, where they conflate privacy with confidentiality. So let's just lock it down so it can't get out. And, and, and confidentiality, keeping something confidential is a security aim. Um, so you're using security to like really like bludgeon like privacy here. Like we, it will not get on, you know, it's locked down and it won't get out. Right. Um, what that does though, is it locks out an asset. You can't use data as well if you're just kind of like locking it up. Right. And I think what you guys are talking about is the trend of, is, is the shift left is, well, if we made the data uh, and the flows of that data, safe because we thought about the context. We thought about like modeling for the risk. You do risk modeling for privacy um, against what are the potential harms to the human behind the data. I don't mean just risk modeling for enterprise privacy of, oh no, will there be a breach and will we have a fine, which is fine to do, but that's not what I'm referring to. Um, so what people do when they talk about uh, anonymity even, right? They'll say, oh, you know, we'll just anonymize the data. We'll just get rid of the identifiers. It's anonymized. And therefore, you know, now we can share it willy-nilly because it's not really there anymore. Well, as I mentioned before, that actually takes utility of the data away to anonymize it. And once you share anonymized data, it can be re-identified re, uh, by, by another company adding uh, appending data sets to it. 
And so I guess what I'm trying to get at is this major trend now, and this is going to open up into talking about privacy enhancing technologies, but of making data not just usable, but like freeing it up so it can be used within the org, but you, you, in a thoughtful way that preserves privacy based on the potential harms for that particular context. If you don't do the hard work and think of those things and then you know enable that data to be, I don't want to say free, but be you can use it, you could share it, you could, you know, with the right uh, privacy enhancing technology, then you're just, you're, you're, it's not the privacy folks that are making the data scientists uh, lock down the data that they really want to use, right? It's not investing in doing the threat modeling in the first place and applying the right controls. So that makes the data shareable and usable and queryable um, and all that. So this is to actually open up the discussion now of maybe, uh, I don't know, um, Catherine, do you want to talk about particular PTs in general, or do you want to maybe tee it up with, you know, federated learning, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it to you to pick your favorite PETs. To yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, there's a few here that I think that we've mentioned different pieces of. So let's just go with like a quick one sentence definition. Like we have anonymization and just to make it perfectly clear, there is no scientific definition for anonymization because any data and any data release will always release information. And therefore, from a scientific aspect, there is no such thing as anonymization. And that comes from Cynthia Dwork's work um, many decades ago at this point in time that essentially debunked the idea that we could ever release data and have somebody not learn something. And she was also one of the core developers of the idea of differential privacy, which is, of course, a theory that lets us bound the probability of somebody learning something. Um, I am here to readily advocate for differential privacy and for teach data scientists about data privacy, teach privacy experts about data, teach, I'll teach anybody about data privacy, uh, data different, uh, differential privacy, because the point uh, here is, is that differential privacy, I think, got a bad reputation in the first few decades because we didn't yet have ways that we could accurately add noise um, and still maintain some degree of accuracy. Those are long ago. We also have much bigger data sets than ever before. Now it is indeed the case that many systems use different. If you have an iPhone, you use differential privacy. And yes, we can debate about some of the implementations and how much privacy they guarantee. But I'm here to say that differential privacy is in active use today. And therefore, that is the gold standard for anonymization um, from a technical perspective. Now, we can talk about whether that fits everything, but that's anonymization, right? Then we have um, actually another technology called encrypted computation. That's actually the field that I used to work in. And in this case, we actually have where confidentiality can meet privacy because we can actually compute on encrypted data and we can decide at what point in time we would actually like to decrypt that data. And we can also combine that with other technologies like differential privacy. And so in the space that I worked on, we built encrypted deep learning where we were able to have financial institutions train models together where all the data remained encrypted until the final model ended up with somebody. And so there is real technology in use today where you can combine the, in, in uh, cryptography, we call it secrecy. 
um, which is really the ability to decide when to decrypt. And this secrecy is not the same thing as privacy, but it can be used to make privacy decisions and say, absolutely, there's no reason why this player in our protocol or this company or this data scientist in this protocol should ever be able to decrypt until we get to the final step of our computation or something like this. And then we have um, federated or distributed analysis, which I think is like, it just needs to have a little love um, relationship with data mesh because I think if we look at the principles of data mesh and we look at the principles of federated or distributed analysis, they go quite well together. And this is the idea of let the data owners keep their data, let's figure out how to mesh or network them, and let's only share what we absolutely need to share to do this uh, analysis or to build this model or to do whatever it is that we're trying to do. And the coolest thing is you can combine all of these things and they don't, they don't have to be mutually exclusive. And uh, the research continues to uh, increase at alarming and exciting rates. Um, and so... I, Samia, I'd be very excited to hear uh, you're 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 nodding enthusiastically. I want to hear your thoughts. <laughs> yeah, no, you're you're speaking my love language, I guess. Uh, plus one to everything you said. I think federated learning is interesting to me because that's that localized ways of doing things. I think with the notion of patient twins or these the concept of digital twins, right? We can truly achieve that because. Um, in healthcare, it doesn't, or sorry, uh, pharma or uh, biotech, it's very important to know how a patient's journey happens all the way from a clinical trial to the time they start taking a drug, uh, once it's like in the market, et cetera, and the adverse events that could happen. So having their privacy contained at their space. And I would love that for myself with my doctors, et cetera. I don't think I have that today. I, I, I joke with a lot of my peers. I lost any rights of privacy the day I was born because I was born in a foreign country. Um, I, I've been fingerprinted everywhere in the US to Europe. I have no privacy ever. But if I had everything localized to myself, I can do an exchange and then I can that's it, right? The transaction is done. So to me, data mesh and even the concepts of blockchain and digital twins, there's there's a way to empower us as individuals to truly have privacy. And to me, I I would I don't think I'll ever rebuild privacy for myself, but for the next generations, I would want that for them, right? The and they care about that because it's so important to protect our rights. And today it's hard to call out when there is bias happening, right? How do we monitor that a clinical trial is truly diverse? And especially with oncology, it can get tricky. And we always try our best uh, to uh, ensure diversity or even with coronavirus, right? All the drugs that were being developed, it's hard to kind of truly ensure that we are being diverse without compromising the, the places where these individuals are going to and the sites they're going to, et cetera. So uh, everything you said, I'm taking notes furiously because I want to stitch those in into our platform. And I guess I have a question for you. What is the cost of implementing that? Because I've seen 
multi-year efforts on differential uh, algorithms being implemented, et cetera. What's the maturity in the space right now that can empower developers and platform engineers to bake that in, um, in the various platforms they're implementing? Yeah, um, it's a great question. Um, and it, it continues changing. So if you're listening to this podcast and a year has passed, please uh, just uh, search for the latest. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but um, in the book um, that I, I worked on, I got a chance to talk with the Tumult Labs team, and they were the ones that helped the U.S. Census uh, implement differential privacy for 2020. They have an open source repository. Um, Google recently relaunched their open source repository for differential privacy called Pipeline DP. So there's that one as well. And then um, I was able to also use PyTorch. So PyTorch is a deep learning library um, maintained mainly by the Meta team. Um, who are the core developers of it. They also have a really cool differential privacy library for using it during uh, machine learning training, deep learning training. And IBM has one that is automatically integrated into Scikit-learn. So if you're using not deep learning, there are some tools there. So there's definitely tools available, but I think it goes back to your initial uh, commentary of just because you have the tools doesn't mean that you know how you should turn the knobs. And I think that means like, one of the biggest costs of, of doing something like differential privacy implementation is getting the expertise there to make the decision, what parameters are we going to choose? How are we going to track it over time and, and all of this? And really, um, passing it back to Deborah, I know that you're a big fan of self-sovereign identity. Yes. Could we not give the users control of their own knobs for their own differential privacy settings, that would be uh, potentially something cool. And I'd be curious, Deborah. I know that uh, Data Mesh is kind of new to you, but hearing us talk about uh, the federated world of Data Mesh um, and your, I know your uh, inspiration from self-sovereign identity, what do you see as possible? Yeah, well, okay. So first, it's interesting because when I first started looking at Data Mesh, which was like two days ago, um, which I picked it up really quickly, like it's <laughs> it's not that complicated when, when when I look at it. But what first comes to mind is, oh, interesting. Okay, on one hand, this is like creating like um, you know a layer, almost like what an API does. This is for you know for DevOps. DevOps. This is creating like. Uh, a, a layer for data scientists. And it immediately looked to me like it was creating like access controls for the right domain. So it, it, it's like, oh, we've been doing role-based access controls for insecurity since, I don't know, the dawn of time of security, right? It's like, who should have access under what, you know, circumstances. And um, it looks like here, that's what this federated architecture is, is like, you know, which teams need access to what data under what conditions and then automate that and make it, you know, more seamless. So, you know, there's a lot to be learned, I think, from the security side of the house. Uh, and then I'm also thinking, uh, you know, can talk about like federation and all that. I'm also thinking that uh, I really like the idea that there's this data as a product, because then you could have product requirements, right? And they could be understood by the teams, they could be documented as uh, policies, procedures, uh, standards within an organization as to how to process data. And so then that way you could really like, I think, get the learnings um, 
uh, you know, get people upskilled real quickly to understand what they're supposed to do and when to, to, to transform data in a privacy preserving way so that they can then, you know, use it uh, and, and make, make, make everyone's jobs easier, but also privacy enabling. Um, what else? God, there's so much. Uh, so self-sovereign identity. I mean, I could just talk about it all day long. Cause I, I think it, it, if it's a decentralized identity uh, approach where uh, we would manage our own, instead of being like stuck in someone else's definition of a, you know, uh, server client architecture and like, what is my, wh- how am I identified by some random third party that I'm going to their, you know, website or, or service or something. It would now be that, you know, all data is locally processed on my, on my device that I have access to, or if not on my device, then somewhere in a data vault or, or whatnot, but access, uh, to that data, uh, is determined by me based on, you know, uh, based on transparency of what it is I want to get, you know, get, give access to. So based on tr- my trust of other organizations. And then um, there's this whole trust triangle within self-sovereign identity that, you know, it requires a giant uh, interoperable, like, uh, there, there needs to be a lot more um, network effects for, you know, co- companies need to all agree that this is going to be the way we kind of do business in the future. So it's going to take, I think, like 20 years, really, to get to a point where we're really doing like self-sovereign identity uh, uh, combined with, you know, other trust architectures, potentially blockchain, but you don't need it. It depends on the use case uh, for, for assurances and transparency. But I think what self-sovereign identity is going to allow us to do is not only manage our own identities and all the data associated with our identities and be able to revoke that. It's going to make companies have to compete on trust, right? Because we're the ones that pull the strings. They can't just extract data from us uh, uh, and extract you know, wealth from us without any sort of remuneration back to us. Um, I really think that self-sovereign identity combined with some other privacy tech, uh, enhancing technologies in the future is going to be uh, solving for like 99% of the current privacy challenges we have today. It's just going to take a long time to get there. There's there's a lot of, um, I don't know, uh, engineering that needs to be done and then, you know, uh, organizations to onboard and, and all of that. So I think I just waxed philosophical for a while. Let's bring this back to data mesh. <laughs> but I mean, I just want to connect it too from, uh, I know that I have a little more time with data mesh. I mean, one of the things, and I think Samia, you were talking about this too, is like when we have data meshes that are intra-org or people might have their own meshes one day and they want to connect their mesh data um, this like uh, is sim- similar as federated identity and and all of the federated learning and other tools that that are starting to come into play. I think that self sovereign identity also has a huge role to play there because I can say when I'm on this mesh, I want to be this part of my identity, or I just want to share these pieces of myself. But when I'm on that mesh. Or even as a company, you could think when we're when we're interfacing with this other mesh, this is the level of controls or who we want to be here. But when we're facing with this with a subsidiary or a closer partner or somebody that we can be more even internally across domains or departments, we can we can use uh, yeah we can use essentially these same tools to completely define 
who can see what and who can interact with what on the mesh, which I think might be a cool idea one day. I don't know. Yeah. And I think it's not just an idea. There's a huge value proposition for the market, right? If I think about all the documents that doctors have to, you know, get the paperwork and the time to complete the paperwork and capture that. And then, oh, now it goes to the government, CMS, or it's going to the FDA. All that, including the FDA, everyone, if they had an interoperable mesh that allowed for the identity, it's a win-win because we can lower the time for how a drug is developed. We can lower the time for a patient visit Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera, right. And for me, for example, just personal life, I've sh- I've moved around different countries, and sh- moving my health records is a challenge because not all countries have fire standards. How cool would it be if I had everything at my fingertips and I can just exchange? And the doctors should not be the the source of truth, they, or they should—they are the source of truth, right? They sign it off, but it should come back to me because it's at the end of the day my data. So to me, I think there is a big value proposition for everyone in in healthcare and life sciences to really think about how does that play in because it can really lower the time to value, and it's a win-win situation for the patient plus the organizations. The uh, efficiencies, right? The cost savings are huge there. Um, I, I, I hope someday I'll find time to prove that out. But yeah. I, 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 that would be my selling uh, thing for the idea you just pitched. Yeah, and and not only are the cost savings huge, but uh, they're huge because by putting these things in place, you are no longer if you're if you as an organization are no longer, re- re- you know, really managing other people's data, you're de-risking that data for from the company's perspective. Like you don't, you might have to assure that the service that you've created for somebody is built with privacy by design and it's going to protect their data, but you're not going to suffer data breach, a centralized data breach if you're if you're keeping it locally stored on on people's devices, right? I mean, there this helps to this is part of the shift left privacy uh perspective because if you if you deploy the right controls up front, the right governance structures up front with with data, you're not going to have uh, you know all this compliance burden on the the right side of the transaction or so the right side of the uh, I don't know um, landscape, right? One post production uh, and things are out there in an app like you you know, if you just anonymize stuff, then people wouldn't necessarily have the value and the need, like the ability to analyze their own data, right? But if you were thoughtful and use the right privacy enhancing technology for these use cases, and then, you know, kind of automate that and enable it, like someone picks their use case in context, and, you know, you allow them what kind of uh, noise or, or level of privacy that, that they want in a you know, you don't just say what level of privacy you want, but you know, you give them the flow of, of 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 the choices, and then on the back end, you just enforce it with the right PETs. Then you're you're enabling people to do things, but also de-risking your organization. Uh, you know, and so, and then the other thing I wanted to say, and this is it's not off topic because it's related to privacy, um, but I really like that data mesh provides a connectivity layer that enables like direct 
access and query capabilities by technical and non-technical users to data sets where they reside. So what that does, it means that you don't have to transfer data from, let's say, the EU to the United States uh, and these, these which you know, necessitates cross-border data flow, you know, mechanisms like binding corporate rules and like it was a privacy shield, but that got struck down. And all these complicated legal flows can be, I don't want to say avoided, but like you don't have to go through that mental process each time if you are querying the data where it resides. And, you know, a lot of countries have data localization laws where they want personal data to stay within the country's boundaries they say it's for you know protection purposes, but a lot of times it's for comp- <laughs> just to try to get companies to do business in those regions and do it locally. Um, but th- it gets rid of the headache of having to worry about the transferring data to another country if you're able to query it where it lies, where it resides. So is the other thing I want to talk about. Um, so I know we only have a few minutes left. And I mean, I think the three of us could talk about this all day long and just geek out. Uh, so, <laughs> so I guess... Um, I definitely want uh, to learn a little more about Catherine's book. So Catherine, tell us about the book you're writing with O'Reilly that's coming out this summer. Yeah, yeah. So the book's called Practical Data Privacy. Um, It went into production this week, so very exciting. Um, And the core audience is for data scientists to learn more about privacy-enhancing technologies and to learn how to apply them to their work. Um, it's kind of a work of passion because when I got interested in privacy technology, it was pretty much just read research papers. And um, yeah, I felt like maybe there should be like an easier way to onboard yourself and you don't have to always do it the hard way. If you want to, you're welcome. But uh, try to do it, you know, I wanted to make it approachable. I think all technology should be uh, presented in an approachable manner. That's what I wanted to do. Um, And so that's why this book exists. And I'm really excited. Um, There was also some feedback that if you're just interested in data privacy and you're a technologist, um, you can learn some stuff. But definitely there's a little bit of math. There's a little bit of machine learning. There's a little bit of statistics. So I just want to put that as a little, either that sounds really awesome to you or that sounds not so awesome to you. (laughs) (laughs) We could just skip over that part, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And there's a little uh, section on uh, federated governance and data mesh. So, Excellent. And then, um, Samia, what projects are you working on or anything you want to plug um, to kind of close out this session? Yeah, this year is the year, the theme is to get ready for the rapidly evolving uh, rules and regulations. So privacy is top of mind and really accomplishing federated governance um, in our space. So I'm closely partnering with my peers to really think about how can we do it in a modern way uh, instead of doing some of the uh, traditional approaches that have been coined in the past that no longer scale. So uh, there will be more to come and I'll I'll hopefully get to, I, I'm eagerly looking forward to your book uh, coming out, Catherine, because I'm applying it, reading it, uh, and really rethinking what does shift left mean in biotech, right? That, that, that thing, uh, that mindset is so important. So more to come next year. Hopefully I'll get to talk to you guys again to come, uh, to discuss on the lessons I learned throughout this year. Awesome. 
Awesome. And then for me, I'm going to um I'm going to just plug my uh podcast, The Shifting Privacy Left podcast. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Um and you know, I've actually recently interviewed Catherine, uh and so we had a really in-depth conversation on ethical machine learning and PETs and uh that comes out March 21st, uh 2023. And then the one, uh, the episode right after that, because these are weekly episodes, they come out every Tuesday, um, is one uh, from one of the co-founders of Duality Technologies. And we really dive deep into, into fully homomorphic encryption. And uh, actually, the, the one that I should have started with uh, on, on, that comes out March 14th is um, with Lipika Ramaswamy, who's a senior applied scientist from Gretel AI. And we talk about leveraging synthetic data and privacy guarantees. So if you're looking to geek out on more um, you know, privacy-specific uh, shift left uh, you know, technologies and, and privacy engineers and researchers, uh, you know, please check it out. Go, you know, shiftingprivacyleft.com is, uh, is the website. But you, like I said, you could find this wherever you listen to podcasts. And then with that, I'm um, I'm excited to conclude this. I'm a little, I mean, I'm not excited. I'm kind of sad to conclude this because I really want to keep geeking out. But um, you could reach out to any of us I'm uh, on, on LinkedIn or, uh, you know, I, I think we're all perpetually online. So <laughs> if you have any questions, yeah. and honestly, this would be a great in-person panel. So if a company wants to, you know, I don't know sponsor us to be on a panel somewhere or come talk to our organization. I think we'd be open to that as well. <laughs> so with that, thank you so much. And, uh, you know, have a great day. I'd again like to thank my guests today. Guest host, Deborah Farber, who's a privacy expert and host of the Shifting Privacy Left podcast. Catherine Jarmel, the author of the upcoming book, Practical Data Privacy, and a principal data scientist at ThoughtWorks. And Samia Rahman, who's the Director of Data and AI Strategy and Architecture at CGEN. You can find a link to each of their LinkedIn's, a link to Deborah's podcast, and a link to Catherine's book in the show notes as per usual. Thank you. Panels really are my favorite. And no, it's not just because I don't have to do the hard work. I, I swear. They give you a chance to hear from folks entirely devoid of my own views, which I think is crucial in our learning journey to figure out how to do data mesh well. Hopefully this one was super useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show. Almost all guests have said that they'd really love people to reach out. Data Mesh Radio is again provided by Data Mesh Understanding and is produced and usually hosted by, you know, except for these panels, by me, Scott Herleman. Do check out our website, datameshunderstanding.com for more information. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised by our offerings and some of the free programs out there. I hope you have a great rest of your day. And with that, let's hear that funky outro music. Mm-hmm.